Well, it's a pleasure to be back here. I haven't been for about 10 years. Um, I came a couple of times about 10 years ago and enjoyed it then, and it's, been, it's nice to be back here, especially on a day like this. The only thing that you probably do need to know about me is that uh, I am a Christian, so you can fire away at that as much as you like in due course. Uh, I have one wife, uh, four children, who brought me four more because they're all married, and 20 grandchildren. Although my daughter in Malawi says I've actually got 80 grandchildren because she and her husband have adopted 60 AIDS orphans. Uh, so we are a very uh, child-friendly family. Um, I don't know the names of the 60 in Africa. I do manage the 20 of the, that are here. Um, what I was asked to talk to you about today is what Hippocrates knew and we've forgotten. Um, most medical schools have some nod to Hippocrates somewhere, but usually that's just a nod. And what I'm about to tell you is what I was stimulated to learn by medical students in Ottawa many years ago. I was, I'm afraid, that the classic sort of professor you know only too well, who walks in, gives his lecture, walks out, and doesn't care whether you understood it or not. Because I was an academic, uh, I knew that I was uh, paid for writing papers and holding grants. And I never found that a great problem, so all was well. And I hated administration, so I had an agreement with the dean. I wouldn't bother him if he didn't bother me, and I would disappear to Africa for two months every year. Me not bothering him means that despite having 80 or so peer-reviewed articles on my curriculum Vanitas, uh, I, um, I was an associate professor. Simply, I didn't open the university mail, because that's how I dealt with the university, so I never applied for promotion. I didn't want it anyway, because you only get administration as a result, and I preferred two months in Africa. So that's the kind of guy I was, um, and then students got to me. And Nowadays, many of you are hungry and worried. The future is not all bright, is it? You wonder what it's going to be like. And I know, for instance, that all of you in this room pretty well hate divorce, don't you? Now, initially, that's such a politically incorrect thing to say, that there's a little jolt, and then you think about it, and it's true, isn't it? Because if it has, hasn't happened to you, it has happened to your friends, hasn't it? Has any child ever enjoyed the divorce of its parents? No. That's why pediatric societies, both the Canadian and the American, say children really need two parents who are faithful to one another because they do better. The data is overwhelming. Uh, but our world is undermining these kinds of phenomena. Uh, we're changing, and it's not altogether for the good. And medicine is part of this process. And I was persuaded to give some rather politically incorrect, uh, rather politically incorrect talk in Ottawa, and a medical student, or a guy who just got into medical student school, was there, and come September he knocked on my door and said, I heard you talk about how evangelical faith doesn't survive medical school. Um, there are four of us in first year who want to survive. Will you help us? I was about to say no in my usual fashion uh, when my mother turned up at the back of my head and said, you could do that, you ought to do that. So instead of no, I said, what would you want me to do? And they said, well, will you help us to integrate our faith with the practice of medicine? And I agreed to do four weeks, and I ended up doing ten years. Uh, students came to my home every Thursday night. Uh, 
we fed them a little bit, not as much as some people do. Uh, they came late, so they'd done some study first, and then we talked. And it usually went till 11 or 12. The sad thing was I didn't need to do any preparation because outside of your immediate scientific training, most of you have been denied a proper education. Uh, and one thing led to another. Now, of course, if you allow students into your life in that kind of way, the first thing is you get to like them, and then they wreck your life. Um, because they ask you to do things that you can't say no to. One such thing was, would I go to graduation because their parents wanted to meet me? I some kind of urban myth, you know? They wanted to see that I actually existed. Um, I never went to graduation. I considered it a total waste of time, which was better spent in the laboratory. But I had to go. So, of course, I arrived late. Um, and on the program was the Hippocratic Oath. And as I listened to it, I thought, there's no way that's the Hippocratic Oath. Of course, it isn't. Uh, the first time I talked about it in, in uh, this country was in, I think, Minnesota. And I still have the poster somewhere because I couldn't resist tearing down a copy and putting it swiftly into my bag uh, as a memento because it had Dr. John Patrick, the Hippocratic Oath. And I thought, that's about right. <laughs> Uh, they didn't intend it to be right. It was a spelling error, but they went closer to the truth than they realized. Um, so I'm only going to talk about four key elements in that oath, each of which are being trashed at the moment. And if you take those four elements away with you and you build them into the way you practice medicine, you'll be a different sort of doctor and you'll be a more satisfied one than you would otherwise be. So do any of you know how the Hippocratic Oath opens? Because, of course, Hippocrates would have had you said it before now. For Hippocrates, it was the entry into medicine, not the graduation into your MD. He said, I will not teach this art to anyone who has not taken this oath. So you should have done it already. Anybody know the opening line? This is, you know, uh, generally literacy 101 that I'm sort of rubbing your nose in at the moment, uh, just to make you a bit angry, really, so that you do something about it. Well, it begins like this. I vow by Apollo and Hygieia and Asclepius and all the gods and goddesses. Now, how many of you would take an oath that starts like that? Not many of you. But, of course, Christians did for thousands of years because we were smarter, more sophisticated in the so-called Dark Ages than we are now. They took it in that form because that was the form in which Hippocrates wrote it. They did it to honor him. But insofar as that oath had any meaning, it was because they made the promise to the God they actually believed in. There is a real problem, isn't there, as Darwin understood in court now. What is the point of asking Dawkins to put his hand on a Bible when he swears in court? None whatsoever. It has no power in his life. He doesn't believe it. And in fact, he believes that the only thing that makes an action right is whether it advances your reproductive potential. That makes justice a problem. You can think about that. If you want to read about it more seriously, the book to read is by an atheist. I love it when atheists are honest. Honest atheists are amongst my favorite people. And there's a, Australia's best philosopher, a man called David Stove, who committed suicide when he found he got cancer, wrote the best book on this that I've ever read. And it has you chortling all the way through. He's an analytical philosopher with an ironic, sarcastic sense of humor. And he writes with passion, elegance, and venom. 
Ah, he hates Darwin because he doesn't explain human beings. He couldn't care less about animals, neither could I, actually. I mean, how they come about, evolution clearly happens. But the problem for Darwin, and Darwin knew it, was altruism. How can you get altruism out of a Darwinian world? You can do it statistically, which is what Willie Hamilton did, and of course he got obituaries in both science and nature. The only problem with Willie Hamilton's model is it doesn't describe our behaviour. For it to work, if you're crossing the bridge and somebody jumps in to commit suicide, you have to jump in with a speed that is correlated with the proportion of shared genes you have. So if it's your identical twin, you jump immediately. If it's just your sibling, you think about it. If it's a cousin, you think a bit more. By the time you get to an outer Mongolian, it's 20 minutes. That produces group altruism, but it doesn't describe what we do, does it? If a child runs in front of a bus, you grab the child without thinking twice about whether you're going to get killed in the process. And you see that wherever you go in the world. I've seen altruism in the middle of the Rwanda war at the risk of your life, not relate for the other tribe. That's, there's no Darwinian explanation for that. And that's Stowe's argument, and he does it beautifully. So Hippocrates was facing the same problem because he knew that there's one modality that you require in your doctor, and it's called trust. Trust is therapeutic, isn't it? That's why when you start medicine, although you may say, as many of you do when you arrive in medical school, nobody's going to change me, I'm going to do medicine with a beard that hasn't been combed for a while and hair that hasn't been combed for a while and wear my dirty T-shirt. But of course, you can't do that. Because eventually you realize that if you were unconscious and you woke up looking at a dirty t-shirt, you wouldn't feel confident. So in a matter of three or four years, because you're decent people underneath, by the end, you are different. You have been enculturated into the medical program to a considerable degree. Because if you don't do that, you, your patients will suffer because of your behavior, and you can't live with that. So... Hippocrates faced a problem that I still see when I'm in Africa. If the witch doctor comes into the village when I'm there, uh, which happens every now and again, then you realize very swiftly that he is not your local friendly pediatrician. Uh, people are afraid of him because witch doctors are pretty good toxicologists. They're also, they have some therapy too. Mobutu, the erstwhile president of... Uh, what was then uh, the Congo, Zaire, and now the non-democratic Democratic Republic of Congo, um, uh, had his own personal witch doctor. More than 30 people died after having dinner with Mobutu during his lifetime. Whether it was swift and painless or nasty, depending on how much you'd upset him. But the means was the witch doctor. Uh, if you go to a witch doctor you must always worry that somebody else might have paid more for your death than you have paid for your life. And anyway, what's to stop him taking both fees? Nothing. There's no trust there. None. Uh, and Hippocrates understood, especially in his age, when it, the techniques were not available, that trust was therapeutic. So he wanted to start a form of medicine that had trust at its heart. Now, rationally, not religiously, but rationally, should you trust a doctor more or less if he believes that he will be judged for his behavior after death? 
Now, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? If you truly believe that you will be judged for your behavior after death, it's going to matter to you what you do now. If you believe that after death there is no meaning, you can do what the hell you like. And that's what they do. I debated Peter Singer in Detroit about a year ago. Now, Peter, Peter Singer is the guy who says a woman should have a right to infanticide as well as abortion because he's a preference utilitarian and his definition of personhood is that you become a person when you're capable of relationship. That makes it all rational. But he didn't destroy his own mother when she got Alzheimer's. That's incoherent. But we are coherent slowly until we become horrified by where our rationality leads us. Um, that's what's happening. So Hippocrates said, I will only teach this art to someone who believes in judgment after death. That, Hippocrates, was one of the sine qua non uh, characteristics of the good doctor. Now, many of you are much better than your belief system actually supports, and for that I'm very grateful. But if you believe that you ought to behave in the way that you do, but then find that your belief system doesn't support it, then you're incoherent and you need to think about that. I'm very glad that many of my colleagues over time practice much better medicine than their belief system could be made to support. And long may that remain so. Because virtue is the product of a society over many centuries. Uh, conversion doesn't make you good, it makes you redeemed. There are plenty of evangelical doctors uh, who have been recently converted who you wish would shut up about it because they're not that competent. Because they bring with them their own family baggage. Uh, when you want to decide who you're going to work with, if you have to choose between, and you're a Christian, and you've got the choice when you get down to the end of it, between a guy who was recently converted wondrously and a guy but had some gambling problems before that, and another guy who's a third-generation Mennonite who's lost his faith. If you don't choose a Mennonite, you're a fool, because you need to work with virtue. And virtue is produ produced over time. It doesn't come quickly. When I'm in Africa, the commonest question I get asked by the pastors there is, why can't I trust the Christians with the money? And I say, who can you trust with the money in your village? And they said, only my brother. I said, yes, that's right. African ethics work at the level of the village, but they do not work at the level of the country. So when you send somebody off to the big city to be president, what does he do? He becomes the third or fourth richest man in the world in a matter of 10 years. I mean, Mobutu's people were impoverished, and he was the wealthiest man in the world. Arab Moy, who began as a Sunday school teacher, became known as Mr. 2% of everything that went into the country. Similarly, incredibly wealthy. Forbes Burnham in the Caribbean used to transport his racehorses around by air. All those countries have multiple malnourished children and no health service. You've got to think about these things. Hippocrates amazingly did and said, okay, my people are going to be people who have a real fear of judgment after death because that will motivate them to do better medicine. Now, it took several hundred years for the Hippocratic tradition to become dominant, but it did because patients voted with their feet. They could see that if you went to the Hippocratic physician, you had a higher probability of coming home alive even better. That was an improvement. 
So that was step one. Step two, of course, is, so question one is, what belief systems are you operating under and are you totally coherent? Work it out. The second question you must ask, answer is this. Is medicine primarily a moral or a technical activity? Which do you think it is? Now you know I'm out to get you, but play the game. How many is there a technical activity? Technical competence. Is that number one for any of you? Moral. How many? And the rest of you are not thinking, which is all of you. <laughs> Remember, the bedside is no place for intellectual pride. You learn much more by getting it wrong in public than you will learn any other way. So commit whenever you're asked to commit. Uh, don't sit on your hands pretending you're smarter than you are, because you're very unsmart to do that. Uh, now, I would argue that, you are, that medicine is in fact primarily a moral activity, not a technical one. There's a great move to turn you into technicians, and some of you will accept it, but it won't be medicine. And the reason is very simple. It's called the fact-value distinction. And you need to think about that. If you can't write a short paragraph on the fact-value distinction, you need to learn to do that. Now, I need a victim. Well, it's John over there who first brought me to uh, Madison a dozen years ago. He's about one of the few names I know here at the moment, so he'll do. Now, <laughs> he's a nice man, too, so there aren't too many of those around. Um, I imagine that John has cancer. And imagine that last week in my laboratory I invented a cure for his cancer. Ought I to give it to him? You've got some friends, but not enough. You've got work to do. Um, but some at least are committing to the point of saying yes. The rest of you should take a remedial year to come back till you do nod reflexly. But what if I'm a really well thought out Darwinian? And John is a very wealthy man, and when he dies, I inherit his estate. What ought I to do now? It's keep it, isn't it? If it really is just a battle of his genes against mine, well, I've got 20 grandchildren, and I've got plenty of space to use his fortune. If that's really the truth, I should keep it. And then when he's dead and gone, I can market my cure for the later winnings. You see, you cannot get to the moral injunction, give that to him because it is good, from physical facts. No physical facts will ever give you a moral injunction without importing into it the idea to save life is good. That did not come from the physical facts. It's not existent in the animal world in the same way, only instinct there. And Hippocrates understood that as well. And so he said... I want people to understand that your primary commitment as a physician is a moral commitment to living life as it ought to be lived. That's what Plato wanted. He might not believe it, but he'd be appalled at the university. When did you last wake up in the morning and say, good, by the end of today I'm going to be wiser? Have you ever said that in university? I can see from your faces that it's an exceedingly rare phenomenon, right? So that's why Socrates would be appalled. That's what he wanted you to be gaining, wisdom. But we haven't done that for years. 
Eliot understood it was going to happen way back in the 30s when he wrote Choruses on the Rock. He said, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? I add my own couplet, which is, information without knowledge is useless, and knowledge without wisdom is called a resident, and it's dangerous. <laughs> uh, it's frightening. Think about it. Lewis put it this way, he said, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality. That, of course, is God for a medieval. And he says, the way to do that was to learn wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. Three courses that aren't taught in the modern university, but should be. He says, for the modern man, the cardinal problem of human life is how to conform the soul and the world to the desires of the individual. That's the modern world, isn't it? The best example would be the pill. Now, this has just died on me. Do you know why? Can you still hear me? Those of you in the back row who want to hear, there's plenty of seats for Baptists in the front row. Um, if it comes back, that will be fine. But... He goes on. The, the, the pill is a good example of that because, of course, what that does is conform your biology to your desire for sex. But it's been a disaster. The only person who understood it at the time was uh, the Pope at that time who wrote when the pill came along. I was around at that time. I was already a doctor. And I remember the, the Reese lecture on the BBC about the pill and how it was going to divorce reproduction from pleasure and the world would be a happier place. How wrong it was. The Pope said it will do three things. First of all, it will create a contraceptive mentality. Has that happened? Oh, yes. Secondly, it will lead to a general lowering of morality. Has that happened? Oh, yes. When I was your age, do you know how many sexually transmitted diseases I had to know about to be certain I wouldn't fail finals? Four. For you, 40. That's moral decline, isn't it? Not moral advance. And thirdly, it will lead to general disrespect for women. Has that happened? Oh, yes. I grew up in blue-collar Birmingham, the British equivalent of Detroit. Nobody in my family had ever been to university during the Second World War. My mother, who had the family gift of being eloquent, despite being uneducated, was quite sought after as a speaker to women's groups within the context of the church. We never had a car. And she would often be speaking quite late, sometimes in the evening, and would come back on the bus across Birmingham and then walk for 20 minutes through semi-darkened streets to our house. And my father never gave it a thought. Would you walk through the semi-darkened streets of Detroit at 10 o'clock at night as women? No, you wouldn't. If you did, you'd be a fool. But there was no risk in the early 1950s. None. That is not improvement. That's not true anymore. The first time I met the woman who was to be my wife, she had walked through Brixton in London, which, again, no woman would walk alone anymore. No, that's what's happening to our world. So we need to think about these things, what kind of world you want and how it's produced. And Hippocrates amazingly had thought about this. You are being turned into technicians, but you really want to be people who are trusted and indeed loved. 
Uh, and that has an entirely different dimension to it than you would get from technique. We manage death better than we used to, but we don't confront it. I was turned around by many events, as I said, students for one, patients for another. I spent six or seven years with a personal fellowship from the Wellcome Trust living in Jamaica, which was nice. Uh, but I was there to look after 10 pound two-year-olds, well not to look after, to study. I was privileged to be part of the group that actually worked out the science of how to take a 10 pound two-year-old and return it to normal health. And we achieved growth rates 25 times the normal rate for age, doubling a child's weight, weight in 40 days. It's a wonderful thing to do. Um, and it all worked and I was privileged to be there when it all came together. Uh, and then I came to Canada and I wanted a model and I found it in cystic fibrosis because 25 years ago most children with CF when they died were technically malnourished and I wanted to know could I reverse it and was there any benefit well the first uh, student the first volunteer was a 15 year old boy with a body mass from the 11 year old uh, to talk about informed consent under those circumstances is stupid I mean he was willing to do anything to get some muscle now what I wanted him to do, and what he agreed to, was to be fed with a nasogastric tube for a month with a chronic cough. I said, if you do this project and complete it, you will have that tube placed probably 200 times during the month. Can you handle that? And he said yes. And he never complained. He was a stoic. And we both had the same warped sense of humor. Uh, we both thought Monty Python was funny. Uh, so we had that in common. Um, halfway through the month, one Sunday, the nurses called and said, Stephen has just coughed up his tube again, and if you want your protocol followed, you'll have to come and put it in yourself, because we've got so many admissions, we're not going to put it in until 7 o'clock tonight. I said, fine, I'll do that. So I drove into the hospital and put in the tube. When I got to his bed, I was wearing a suit, which I don't normally do, and he said, oh, you go to church. Right, lad. I said, yes, do you? It turned out I was Protestant, he was Catholic, and I was well-trained. I said, no more, and he said, no more. Um, but... His amazing mother, the next week, said to me, you ought to have taken that opportunity to talk to Stephen about faith. You could do that. I have no idea where that thought came from in her head because there was certainly no evidence for her to base that thought on. And I took no notice of what she said. Now, the project failed from Stephen's point of view, but not from my point of view. We had enough data to carry on, but he got 600 grams, not 6 kilograms. But to cut a long story short, we put the first permanent feeding tube into a CF child 25 years ago. It's a routine around the world. When you get to the clinics and you go to a CF clinic, you'll find a good number of the kids, when you lift their shirt, have a little button, and they take an extra 1,500 or 2,000 calories every night. Stephen made that possible. His courage led to a program that produced that endpoint. But we, did, we were friends by the end of that month and if I knew it was in I didn't do day-to-day -day care I wasn't sufficiently reliable for day-to-day -day care um, but I would go and see him if I knew it was in some four years later at about this time of day uh, I was called to go and see him and when I got there he was clearly dying his mom was sitting by the bed uh, he'd said nothing for two or three hours which is typical of a respiratory death with CO2 levels going up slowly the best way to die respiratorily. You don't want to go with oxygen going down. That's, not, that's very uncomfortable. But CO2 going up is bearable. He didn't even, yeah, mild headache, but didn't even want aspirin. But when I came in, he spoke. And he said, sit down, I want to talk to you. We were well past the normal doctor-patient relationship. 
And so I sat down and said, Stephen, I'm sorry to see you're so sick. What can I do for you? And he said, it says in the Bible, if you ask anything in my name, I'll give it to you. I'm 19 and I'm dying and I don't want to. What do you say? What are you going to say to the first patient who says something like that to you? What are you going to do? What I wanted to do was get out of there as fast as possible, but that wasn't an option. He was a friend. So playing for time, I worked my way through the creed. Of course, he believed in God. He believed Jesus was the Son of God. He believed that he came to die for our sins. He believed that if you confess your sins, when you die, you go to heaven. The trouble was, it wasn't helping. He didn't want to die. He wasn't ready. Of course, I was praying too, because I didn't know what to say. Lord, what on earth do I say? And that very short prayer, you know, it's a very good prayer, help. Uh, it, it is almost invariably answered. And uh, this one was. And into my head popped a wonderful American writer, Annie Dillard. Do we have any Annie Dillard writers apart from John? Readers here? No, you've got work to do. Uh, people who don't read Annie Dillard shouldn't be doing medicine. Yeah. Um, anyway... The line was this, I, I later discovered, it was a footnote in Pilgrim at Tinker's Creek. She said, oh yes, God will provide for all your needs, but do read the small print. He decides what your needs are, not you. And I knew what to say. I pointed out to Stephen already that by this time there were children running on that ward who wouldn't have been walking but for his courage. The project was working. Kids were getting an extra five years and most importantly they were dying in six weeks, not two years of misery which had been the pattern up till then. Uh, and he had made it possible. So I said to Stephen, your problem is like most Western people, you're misreading the text. As Catherine the Great put it, it's my job to sin, God's to forgive. Well, in this case, Stephen was saying, it's my job to ask and God's to give. But he will only give you what is good as judged by him and not by you. And I think what he's saying to you, Stephen, is that something like this. Stephen, you have done all that I want you to do. You have coughed enough. It's time to come home. Both you and I know that you're going to die in the next few hours. Can you also believe that that might be the best thing that could happen to you? His mom had not helped at all. She had not said a word the whole time. I'm sure she was praying. And there was a very profound silence, and then he looked up and he smiled and he said... I think I can. Thank you. That helps. And he died very peacefully a few hours later. But his amazing mum, who was going to lose three children to CF, had not finished with me. I still have her letter somewhere, which began, it was ironic you were not allowed to give Stephen food for his body, but thank God you were there when he needed food for his soul. He'd been asking that question of his priest, of his family, of his doc, and everybody had pushed it away. Till I came in. Now it wouldn't have made any difference in my view to God's handling of Stephen. He'd have got to the right answer at the same time. But getting there would have been less comfortable. It was for his mum who it was very important that her first child dying of CF die well. And for me, but for me it was a huge guilt trip because I hadn't had a conversation like that for 20 years. I had been practicing very bad medicine for 20 years. Not to engage the faith system of your patients with real respect, not Obama-esque respect, where he'll trash the conscience of the Catholic Church without a word, but saying, what do you believe? What do you believe about death? Knowing that and being able to use its strengths and avoid its weaknesses, that's good medicine. 
Not your faith, but their faith. Uh, they will ask you about your faith and all sorts of things will come out of that. But anybody who tries to teach you multicultural ethics doesn't know about patience because you will never see a multicultural patient. They don't exist. Every patient, every one of you in this room has a set of beliefs, whether you've thought about it or not. There's no rational position that is without belief because every rational position has a starting preposition, proposition that you cannot prove. Hippocrates knew all this stuff. Isn't that amazing? 2,500 years ago. And the next one, the third statement you need to think about, he said, the people to whom I teach medicine will neither do abortion nor assist with suicide. Why? Because that, the real catastrophe when doctors start doing that is that trust is diminished. What we should have done with abortion and what we should certainly do with euthanasia, because it will come, is say anybody except a physician. It only takes 10 minutes to teach people how to kill someone and it only teaches a few weeks to teach them how to do an abortion. We should have kept them both out of medicine because they're destructive of trust and trust is therapeutic. Uh, obviously, people who believe that life has no meaning have an ethical performance of abortion possible but they have a world that has all sorts of consequences that's a different choice but I do have to spend a couple of minutes telling you a little bit of history because you need to know it how many of you have ever heard of a book called The Nazi Doctors by Jay Lifton a couple, good John again uh, and a younger gentleman at the back that's well done it's difficult to read though isn't it but you need to know about it and you need to have a copy somewhere. It'll take you years to read it. You see, people like me, academics, are very dangerous. We say things that we haven't thought through. And we say them with such confidence you believe them to be true. And in the end of the 19th century, Darwin's brother-in-law, or I think he was a brother-in-law, but a relation of Darwin called Galton, started the eugenics movement. We ought to breed better people. Now, there are two words in that sentence that really need a lot of thought. What are they? Ought and better. And both words are not thought about enough. I've already pointed out you can't get from is to ought in our world. Where did the ought come from? That needs discussion. And better? Well, more of that in a moment. If I don't get to it, remind me at the end. Nothing could be done in the 19th century about humans, really, we weren't ready for it. But professors would say things like that. It really started to change in the 1930s. Uh, it began with the Nazis. The first people, one of the first acts of government of uh, the Hitler regime was to legalize uh, voluntary euthanasia. That included parents getting rid of disabled children. That's all to begin with. Ironically, and the ironies in this story are immense, the Jews were not allowed to have euthanasia because by defini definition they couldn't be improved as a race. The reason for uh, euthanasia was to improve the Aryan race. So, it began. Now, it, the people who did it first were doctors because in those days, before we had the psychotropic drugs, uh, 
outside every large city, there were several hospitals usually that looked after the mentally and physically disabled. And they were, they were run by neurologists and psychiatrists. And they were in loco parentis. So it was now legal for them to kill patients. And they began to do, it, do that. Initially, they did it by injection. And they found, as most people who do this do find, that this is profoundly upsetting. So they stopped. They realized, when you're going to kill somebody, you have to create distance in some way or another. That's why we dress people who are going to be executed in strange garb, so that they look not like us. And the more distance you can get, the better you like it. So they, the first thing they did was they invented the gas chamber. That was invented by a psychiatrist. But there was only one gas chamber and several hospitals, so they had to get the patients from the hospital to the death chamber. And being Germanic and legalistic, they couldn't use an ambulance to take someone to their death, so they actually bought a bus out of their own money. And on the side, in German, of course, they had written, the charitable transportation company for the sick. How ironic can you get? And they started to do this. Now... At about the same time, Hitler started on his final solution for the Jews, and initially he had the Wehrmacht shoot naked Jews into trenches they'd been forced to dig. Now, that demoralized the Wehrmacht, so he stopped. That was far too important to him. Then he heard what the doctors were doing. And so the whole of the extermination of the Jews was handed over to doctors. If you were unfortunate enough to arrive at Auschwitz, you were met on the platform by a doctor in an SS uniform. And he looked at you long enough to see whether you had muscle mass or not. If you had muscle mass, you went into the camp, which had over the head that horrendous, ironic freedom through work. The freedom was going to be the death chamber anyway. But if you were elderly or young, you went straight to the death chamber. Now, when the war was over and the things that were going on were discovered, the whole of the Western world was appalled. What do you think the defense of those doctors was? We were only obeying the law. Everything done in Germany was legal. So if anybody says, you must do something because it's legal, as is being said in your country at the moment, you say, what about Auschwitz? It was legal. Should it have been done? No. There are more important things than mere legality. The law can be twisted and used badly, and when it is, you have the duty to say so. So you need to have that book on your shelf so that you can read and think about what our profession is capable of because we buy into the God complex very easily. Shouldn't do that. So we were involved, and we will be again. So decide where you're going to be and be prepared to stand for what you believe to be good for the practice of medicine. And the final thing that he put on that list is the rights of conscience. I will guard my life and art in purity. This is under attack now. You are going to be asked by some of your mentors to do things which to you are immoral. If you're a Catholic, for instance, you will certainly find in obstetrics and gynecology people who say you have to write prescriptions for contraception. That is not acceptable for a Catholic. Uh, the church tells you you should not do that because it makes you an accomplice to an act which damages the soul of the patient, and you shouldn't do that. You will be asked, and maybe even dragooned, into assisting with abortion. 
I was pro-choice for 20 years over rubella babies. It took me a long while to sort this out. I do now give a regular lecture on abortion. I gave it last night in, in Milwaukee. Uh, it ends in dead silence every time. But I, I had, it was 20 years before I sat down and asked myself, not do I feel this is a woman's issue, but, but can I think that? And I found that I couldn't. Um, and neither does the woman actually want the logical consequences that are in, entailed. I've given that lecture probably a hundred times from Harvard to California to Oxford to Cambridge to St. Petersburg to Sydney. I've never had a, an aggressive question at the end. So Hippocrates had got this straight. He understood what was at stake. And so when you are asked to do something by a mentor that is to you immoral, don't say no. Ask a question. And the question you must ask is, do you wish you and your family to be cared for by a doctor with or without moral integrity? Raise your hand if you want a doctor without moral integrity to care for your mum. None of you. You want a doctor without moral integrity? With, sorry, I was going to say. I know I've got a foreign accent, but I didn't think it was that bad. Um, you'll never forget that either. That's good. Uh, no, we all want a doctor with moral integrity. It therefore follows, does it not, as pure logic, that you ought not to impugn the moral integrity of anyone. We've got to create space for it. What that means is we need the doctrine of subsidiarity. We, you live in a nation, as all Western nations are at the moment, in a nation without a moral consensus. Now, a nation is actually built on what it believes to be good. You can't, you can't build a nation on rights of minorities you build a nation on what you hold in common. And what we hold in common is getting narrower and narrower. What we're doing is eroding the foundations of the structure. If you do that with a house, you can take away quite a lot of the foundation, can't you, before it falls down. But you can't take it all away. We're on the way. We're collapsing. I haven't destroyed it. Um, that's where we're at at the moment, that we are eroding the foundations. We need, in fact, I think, to divide medicine into two distinct streams, one that I would call Hippocratic medicine and one I would call secular medicine, because neither side can prove their starting proposition. Both sides have to be uh, respected and allowed to practice their medicine, and then we see by the outcomes which one works best over time. Now, in the case of Hippocratic medicine, it took several centuries before Hippocratic medicine dominated. But once it was established by the first century of the, uh, the Christian era, uh, nobody challenged it until the 19th century, the 20th century in the early part. So for all that length of time, it was uncontested. And in the last, in my lifetime, that's all changed. Rights of conscience matter. Now, one of the key things you need to understand about conscience is that there are two, the ancients, again, wiser than us, had two words for conscience, not one. We only have one. They distinguish very clearly between moral feeling and moral thought. Moral feeling is the word conscientia, from which we get conscience. The word for moral thought was synderesis. Now, the important thing to realize is that your moral feelings can be frequently wrong. It took me 20 years to realize that what I felt about a woman with a rubella baby was in fact wrong. Uh, it took only one afternoon of trying to think it through to see why it was wrong and be recognized I had to change. So if you 
if you find yourself saying, I feel that this should be done, quit at that point and say, okay, now can I think it? Now, the book to read, if this is important to you, is a brilliant uh, American uh, professor from uh, Austin, University of Texas. He was hired to develop a theory of government that didn't require morality. He, nearly, he told me that he nearly committed suicide before he gave up. The book is called What We Can't Not Know. Lovely double negative. There are things we can't not know. And he wants you to think about that. His name is Budziszewski, which uh, phonetically is Bud Zizuski. Um, but if you need to chase him up, uh, there are people here. John would certainly know how to find him. If, or you can email me. Uh, my name's John Patrick. Uh, you can find me on Google and get to me indirectly through Augustine College, where I teach the history of ideas to people who want to be able to confront the world they live in. Now, I've left you with those four issues to think about. Life after death and judgment after death, does it matter? Is it going to happen? The nature of medicine, the role of the sanctity of life, and what rights of conscience must you fight for in the context of medicine? Those are not unimportant questions. Uh, they're not easy questions. There's a lot of learning you need to do. Now, if you find yourself being oppressed by this medical school, which some of you will over the next few years, take a year off. Any dean will give you a year off when you say, there are questions being asked here that are much deeper than medicine. I need to think about them. Come and visit the college I now run in Ottawa. We've had, you can go to the website. It's called Augustine College. Um, .org because of Augustine's motto I believe in order to understand what you believe determines what you can understand it doesn't work the other way around the university thinks you understand in order to believe but you can't get there that way uh, what a culture believes determines what it can understand if you believe in evil spirits that explains a lot of misery but doesn't allow you to do science so uh, come and do the, year with, the eight months with us and we will teach you history history of science and medicine and math, art and architecture, literature and philosophy, history of the church, and Latin to make you a bit more logical, and we'll teach you how to recognize a true and false argument. What happens then is that you take on your professors. One of our graduates from last year uh, is now in medical school, and about a month ago I got an email, and he said, oh, we had a, a series of lectures on biopsychosocial medicine. And the first PowerPoint, which you note I don't use. I think PowerPoint is counter-learning, not pro-learning. Um, he put up his first PowerPoint. It said, there are no absolutes. And Nathan raised his hands. Now, how, how many people have raised their hands in the first semester of medical school to ask a question in front of everybody? Not common. He said, sir, is that question internally consistent? That statement, internally consistent? And, of course, the whole class laughed. If there are no absolutes, you can't make the statement that there are no absolutes and be coherent. That is utterly incoherent. Uh, your mind has long since been addled and the right place for you to go is the loony bin. You know, that's where you're at. And of course, the prof was caught. He had to back down. And good for him. He actually said to him at the end of term, because that wasn't the only question he had for him. He said, you've asked the best questions I've been asked in the last 10 years. That's, you need to learn to ask good questions. Start by reading Peter Kreeft, K-R-E-E-F-T. 
A Refutation of Moral Relativism is a marvellous dialogue in which Peter Crave writes a dialogue in which a Muslim and a sassy black American feminist argue. Because the Muslim, of course, is a moral objectivist. It's the sassy black American feminist who gets beaten up, but uh, logically. But I must stop. And if you want to ask questions, you have about five minutes, and then I have to go to catch a plane. But thank you. Probably your questions will be more likely to appear as emails in a little while, right? My email address is... I'm not supposed to give this out. My wife will get cross, so only send a, an important email. Uh, it's jpatrick at uottawa, U-O-T-T-A-W-A dot C-A, which is not California. It's that country to the north of you, known as Canada. Good. It's unusual that there would be. Yeah. But you can come and talk to me afterwards if you want. I've got a few minutes. Okay, so one more time, let's just thank Dr. John Patrick.